Wait, days? Yes, days. <laughs> You're interrogated <laughs> alone for several days? Yes. That's terrifying. <laughs> oh. GMBA Youthcast. How can people say there's liberty in serving God when God gives us so many restrictions and rules to live by? Today on YouthCast, Brother Larry Watson shares about how it took being arrested and accused of espionage by the Russian Secret Service in the heart of the Cold War to redefine his idea of what true liberty really means. Brother Larry, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. Just very briefly, for those who may not know you, you're currently an evangelist in the church. You live for 49 years on the Navajo reservation, working to spread the gospel there. But when you were a young man in, in college, you weren't necessarily really seeking the Lord. No, I wouldn't say that I was really seeking the Lord's will for my life. I was hoping that he would come along for the ride, <laughs> join me in what I wanted to do. <laughs> yeah, so, so in, in 1966, right after you finished high school, you get baptized. Right. But then shortly afterwards, you go to college, and it seems like that's when you kind of start to, I guess I could say, reject the authority of God or seek alternative philosophies to what you had learned from your parents or growing up. How do you have such a sudden change of heart to going from getting baptized and then not that long after kind of going a different direction? I did get baptized, but there wasn't the full repentance that should have been there. Um, I believe that my baptism was more about wanting to check the boxes to make sure that I had uh, done what I thought I was expected to do, and I wanted uh, to feel safe and secure in God's love, but I, I also wanted to be in charge of my life. To say that it was an abrupt change, I wouldn't say that. I think I, I was already kind of sliding in that direction. Um, even when I was in high school, I felt I loved the church, I loved the Lord, but I felt that it was too restrictive. So you didn't necessarily feel like you had freedom or liberty in serving God to do everything you wanted to do with your life? To do what I wanted to do. <laughs> Got it. So I had plenty of liberty to do what he wanted me to do. <laughs> Just to get an idea of when you go off to college, what are some of kind of the philosophies or ideas that attracted you at the university that were different? It was becoming increasingly more difficult for me to accept the fact that our church truly was um, established by way of revelation and that our church represented the fullness of the gospel restored. And I was more skeptical and cynical. And a part of it was also the environment that I was in. It encouraged skepticism and cynicism. I, I, I was leaning more toward that I could determine what was true. And I, not, not just that I'm the measure of everybody's truth. I was the measure of my truth. And you were the measure of your truth. That idea. I was picking and choosing the values that I wanted to live by. Um, I didn't want God to determine those values for me. 
I didn't realize at the time, and I overlooked the fact that moral truth is by way of revelation. It doesn't come through education. Spiritual truth, same thing. Do you think at this time your parents were aware that you were starting to lean away from your faith? Yes, definitely. Um, they reacted differently. My father was concerned, but he gave me a lot of rope. <laughs> um, he, he didn't really talk about it a lot, but I knew that he was praying for me. My mother, on the other hand, she was, I think, more prone to want uh, to kind of rein me in. Um, she was very concerned and would talk to me about it. And almost like in a pleading way. Um, and I don't mean that in any way to disparage my mother. She loved me. And she was concerned about me. Um, and I realized that it just wasn't perhaps the, the thing that was most effective for me. I think my father's approach was more uh, of an impact. Do you still believe in the existence of God? Yes, I had a concept of God. But... It was becoming less and less about a personal God who intervened in the course of man and in our individual lives, someone that I, I could talk to um, personally and have um, a dialogue with. That began to, to become less and less real to me. It didn't happen overnight, but the less I went to church, the more my concept of God changed to more of a cosmic force, a, cre a creator who has set things in motion. Even during this time, when in a sense you're running from God, at least, you know, spiritually and ideologically, God is still seeking you out. And, he, and something happened a couple years later where I think God started to catch your attention a little bit. So can you tell us about your trip to Europe in 1968 and what happened there because honestly it's kind of an, an insane story a little bit <laughs> well i i was running away from god um i might not have seen it in that way but running away from his authority i was attending college that was about uh, 400 miles away and and then i wanted to go to college in uh in in europe well that was another gosh six or seven thousand miles away so i wound up studying at our campus in uh, vienna austria it was a six-month program and during that time we had an opportunity to travel and uh one particular break that we had was a three-week break my friends invited me to go with them to the Soviet Union. Big mistake. I <laughs> listened to them, and I told my parents about it, and they begged me not to go, especially my dad. But I was very adventurous, and so I decided to go. One of my friends had bought a, 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 a red convertible. You're going in style. It, but it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't a fancy convertible. It was, it was an old-fashioned type of convertible, the kind that um, 
you unravel the top of the convertible, which was canvas, like you'd unwrap a old ham can. And so wherever we went, because of the kind of car we were driving, it attracted a lot of attention. We were um, required to stay at different campsites as we traveled. We rarely went to a hotel because we couldn't afford it. So every night we were at a different camp. Uh, we made it into the Soviet Union. This was in the midst of the Cold War. The United States had just signed an international treaty with uh, the Soviet Union, indicating that um, if any of their nationals would uh, find themselves in trouble, they could have access to um, counsel. So you're saying if an, uh, if an American citizen gets in trouble in the Soviet Union, then the Soviet Union is required to inform the United States. Yep. And we were naive. You know, it was the middle of the, of the uh, Vietnam War. And uh, I was into student activism at the time on our campus, uh, involved in uh, some demonstrations. And so I was uh, um, very anti-establishment. And during the course of our travels, we went to the Red Chinese Embassy in Moscow. And then we went to the American embassy and not understanding fully the mind of a totalitarian state and um, autocratic type of government. I had no idea that they would be following our every move. It was unusual in those days to, to, for Americans to travel through the Soviet Union in a car. Usually they would travel in a tour group, but they gave us permission to do that. What we didn't realize is that they did that mainly because they were wondering what we were up to and automatically suspected us just because we were American. So when they saw us go to those embassies, they, that convinced them that we were agents working for uh, the government, perhaps the CIA. And they really wanted to get some type of something that they could use to entrap us and then question us. And so they hired some students who posed as friends of um, America and American young people. And we met them at Gorky Park in, in Moscow, and they invited us to their home. Well, they were asking all kinds of questions about America, and, and then they gave us these gifts, which were um, religious icons. And they said, you need to hide these when you get to the border, or they'll take them away from you. But we, we, and we knew that that was the case. We should have known better. We should have never taken them. But um, again, we were naive. And then they asked for some presents from that were American, and we gave them some things that we had. And, and then we drove for the border a couple of days later. Well, as it turns out, as we were driving along in 
this flaming red Citroën, as it was called, was a French car. Sometimes the car would drive so slow that as we were going uphill, little children would be running alongside the car. <laughs> <laughs> and, they, and they would ask us for anything that was American, you know, chewing gum or a pencil, anything, anything that was American. The, the poverty was so, um, was so horrific there in those days. It was in the middle of GMBA Camp Out Week, which I knew it was because, you know, I followed the church, even though I wasn't as close as I was. But as we approached the border, I found myself singing some camp songs and just yearning to be there, missing my parents, missing my family, and missing the love of the saints. Now, that may seem strange to you to hear me say that after I'd already talked about how I was pursuing all these other philosophies and ideologies and everything, but deep down inside, I had seen enough of the church. I had seen enough of, of the hand of God. I knew that he was real. I was just covering it up because I wanted to go my own way. So when we got to the border, they were waiting for us and they knew where, where to find the, the gifts. And, and then they accused us of smuggling. And then that led to um, what they were really after, which was they began to question us on espionage and uh, what we were doing at the Red Chinese Embassy. And were we carrying messages back and forth? What is the the questioning like? Well, they, at times, they would try to trip me up because any good spy going to Russia would know Russian. Well, I didn't know Russian. I knew some words, but I certainly couldn't speak the language. So they would start in English, and then sometimes they'd slip in some Russian words to see if I would pick up on it, I would recognize or understand what they said. And of course I didn't, so that didn't work. <laughs> and then they would come in and they would say, your friend has already confessed. And if you confess, then we'll go easier on you. If you're, you you're getting interrogated all by yourself. Yes. We were... We were both we were both separated at that time. What's going through your mind as is as being taken captive by a foreign government in a room, interrogated by yourself, and nobody knows? I've never felt so alone in all my life, and never felt such fear. Um, it sounds terrifying, <laughs> especially when they said that you know they were going to put us on public trial and that we could be put away for 10 to 15 years, maybe in Siberia. I mean, yeah, it was terrifying. And I was convinced in my heart that I wasn't getting out of there for a long time. Uh, it just was not going well at all. It was getting worse and worse every day. After several days being interrogated alone, they brought us back together again. Wait, days? Yes, days. <laughs> You're interrogated <laughs> alone for several days? Yes. 
that I didn't realize that. That's terrifying. Yeah. Oh yeah. my gosh. I, that would horrible. Be, oh my goodness. Especially okay. this, this um, young man that grew up in a rather sheltered home never knew much in the way of um, of getting into trouble. You know, I had never been thrown in the jail before or anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> so we got we got back together, and um, my friend told me that he had smuggled in a Bible. So you really were smugglers. Yeah. <laughs> he had smuggled in a Bible in the lining of his coat. Well, he did that because it was contraband. You, you couldn't have a Bible in those days in the Soviet Union. He was a Christian, too, like me. But he had also backslidden. But for some reason, he brought in the Bible. So when I saw that Bible in his hands, I can't begin to tell you the joy that I felt. I was so anxious to read the Bible with him. Now, here's a guy who my mother, when she was packing my clothes to go to college, she, she hid a Bible in my clothes in there, hoping that I would read it. And when I saw the Bible and the note that she put in there, you know, um, asking me to read the Bible, I, I really didn't have any desire to read it. And I just put it on the shelf. But in these circumstances, all of a sudden, someone who acted like I didn't need God, all the pretense was gone. I knew I needed God. There was no question in my mind. So we also started to pray together. After you've, in a sense, been pushing away God for a while, and now all of a sudden you're praying, is there any part of you that's wondering, you know, would God even listen to me? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. And the answer is yes. I, I did feel that way. I did. I did wonder, and he felt ashamed, embarrassed. Um, I was humiliated in the sense that I felt like I had embarrassed my parents because I got into such a mess. Um, I knew that this could create an international in incident. I mean, it spun so far out of control. It wasn't even, it, it was, wasn't remotely like, um, the kind of trouble I thought I could ever get into. And yet, there I was. And I knew that I had brought it on myself. I didn't feel like um, I had any right to ask God for anything. And yet I did because there was nothing else I could do. I, didn't, I knew that he was my only hope. So I swallowed my pride. And so did my friend. And we unashamedly prayed and cried and begged God to help us. What would you say to yourself at that moment or to someone who perhaps has intentionally walked away from the Lord in one way or another, and maybe they're feeling anxious or, or ashamed about approaching God again? I think that's a, 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 a tactic that Satan uses against us. The very time that we need him the most, he will try to convince us into thinking we're not 
we're not worthy of having a prayer answered. Or he'll try to convince us he's not really there. He won't listen. And I think that we need to understand that God is a loving father. And that's exactly what he wants to have us do, is turn back to him like the prodigal son. I was like the prodigal son. I, we underestimate, I think, the love of God. He's rooting for us to come back to him when we're, when we're away from him. God allowed me to get into that situation where I was alone, where I had I was not able to contact the ambassador or the embassy or an attorney or my family. Even my own friend who was there, he allowed me to get into that situation, which I brought on myself. But when I was completely alone and had come to the end of myself, that's when I was ready to listen and hear from God. You mentioned that you weren't able to contact the embassy or any United States officials. Does that mean that's a violation of the treaty that you referenced earlier? Yes. They had uh, already violated a treaty that they had only signed uh, weeks before that. And so that was just an indication of how certain they were that we were agents of uh, the CIA, which boggles my mind. It certainly boggled my mind then, and I didn't fully understand just how uh, convinced they were or how suspicious they were. You found the Bible, you've been reading it, you've been starting to pray again. What's going on with the situation with the Soviet Union? What are they telling you at this point? I think now they were ready to really um, play their final card. And so they came into our room and uh, they told us that on the following day that we were going to be brought into a press conference. Their television networks would be there. Journalists would be there. And we, we would be asked certain questions. And they told us what the questions would be. And then they told us what the answers needed to be. And they wanted us basically to incriminate ourselves and to incriminate the United States government. Then they said that if we answered in the way that they had told us to. So if you incriminate yourself. If we incriminated ourselves, they would let us off easy. They would show us mercy. But if we didn't, answer the way they wanted us to. Then we would be put on public trial and they would bring those charges against us with the potential of being imprisoned for 10 to 15 years. That is that is terrifying. Brother Larry, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today's episode. So <laughs> Our audience, I'm sorry, you're going to have to join us next time <laughs> to see what do you guys decide to do? Are you going to tell the, tr the truth and get faced 10 to 15 years in prison? Or are you going to incriminate yourselves and hope that the Soviet Union will actually be merciful like they said? Also, you know, in the heat of this moment, you have this newfound faith. Does that stick around when the heat cools off? You guys, I'm sorry. You're going to have to join us next time to find out. I'm Paolo DiCenzo from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. 
You can connect with the GMBA on YouTube, all podcast platforms, and Instagram. There are links in the description, so make sure to like and subscribe. Leave a comment and share this with someone you know. Thank you.